All right. Well, hello, hello. Once again, I'm Hayden, and we're working through redeemed humanity, uh, which is what I'm calling kind of a viewpoint that I'm taking when it regards the sexes as far as um, their roles in the church and um, leadership and things like that. Um, I, I'm not just taking this role because I think it. I'm actually trying to help expose that I, I believe this is what the Bible is telling us. And as we work through now these six passages that are from Paul's letters that seem to trouble this um, idea that men and women were created equally, but there was a curse in Genesis. And now though, that that curse has been broken in Jesus, that there's equality in the church. These verses seem to challenge it, but what I'm hoping to expose is that this is actually Paul wrestling with his culture at the time and trying to speak wisdom into the moment where they were living in just a different culture that needed some nuance and some care, as well as these women were were needing to be trained up in more specific and um, systemic ways so that they could actually be in a place to preach what is true. And we've seen that consistently over these first two passages. And now we're going to jump into Ephesians 5, uh, 21 through 23. But before we do jump into this passage, I want to make a quick note because I I wasn't actually sure if I wanted to include this passage in this project because I think it actually falls outside of its scope. So if, if you'll remember, the aim of this project is really geared towards men and women's roles in the church. And this section of Ephesians, it, it actually doesn't really talk about church leadership. It's actually aimed at life in the home. But I, I decided to include it because I think it's relevant to the overarching conversation regarding sexes in the Christian life. And, and it's a passage that complementarians point me to in support of their argument. So with that, let's jump into Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. The letter from Paul to the Ephesians, it it deserves as much literary context time that anyone can give when they're actually going through this section. It's beautiful. It's crafted artfully. And because Paul is deliberately combining poetry and prose, it's got to be really sufficiently cared for when we're working through it exegetically. So that's what we're going to try to do. Chapter 1's main thrust is this little poem that is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. He is the one who fulfills the Father's promised plan to bring all things into unity under his name. Paul says that God is now reaping the first fruits of this reality through the Holy Spirit's work in uniting Jews and Gentiles together as one family of God. And the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, it now lives in the body of believers. And that's the theology that he kind of puts together in this poem in chapter one. And then he 
unpacks that theology in chapters two and three, and specifically for the Gentiles and showing how that it's actually by God's grace that they too have been saved from their death and their exile away from God's presence. And now they're being raised to that resurrection life in Jesus. And it's bringing a new way of living and and into a new family for them to belong to. So Paul writes about experiencing all of this firsthand as he's been traveling the world and preaching the gospel. And and he's giving God so much glory for just this humble honor to be included in witnessing this. And so he prays for the Ephesian church that they would see how beautiful this is and honor God for this chance to love him and know him in this way. Chapters one through three together, they create this just beautiful picture of Paul's theology and and his comprehension of the gospel. and, And it's affecting the unity of the church in practical ways, according to Paul. So then chapters four through six are the applications that he sees blossoming out of that worldview. And in those chapters, we see Paul, he's doing homiletics for the Ephesian church. So we should pay close attention to how he does it and then allow that to inform our approach. So Paul begins building on the unity aspect of the gospel stated in chapter 1, which he emphasized by pointing out the church's place as a new family that's composed of both Jew and Gentile. Paul concludes that the church is to be one, but the beauty of this is that the unity of Abraham's family, it's, it's no longer through appropriation or through like cultural replacement, but it's actually something, it's more like infusion. Said differently then, the church is to be this family where everyone can bring their unique diversity with them and so be able to specially contribute to it. But no distinction of value should occur based on what that individual is bringing. They're all one in Christ. After unpacking the church's oneness, Paul goes on to explain what that should look like practically. And the reality is, no society has ever lived with this sort of sociological value system. And what's more, because the church is supposed to function as a community within a larger kind of secular society, the Ephesians will have to be one in a way that is prophetically countercultural but also not rebelliously so. This is a difficult line to walk, and Paul spends the rest of the letter helping give guidance on what that will look like for the Ephesian church to live in this sub-community that considers one another to be equal, all while embodying Christ's humility, such that any animosity toward the church would be considered unfounded. For Jesus, though, Having equality with God, he used that authority for the building up of others rather than himself, and the church should mirror that. So that's the buildup to our passage, and we should keep that with us as we seek to understand and and correctly interpret 5, 21 through 33. But there is another very important piece to interpreting this section, and it's to ensure that we don't detach it from the rest of the argument. 
That important piece is Ephesians 6, 1 through 9. And it's clearly a continuation of Paul's argument that he begins in chapter 5. We have been done a disservice by biblical organizers who are well-meaning, but they put this chapter break in the middle of Paul's argument. And then it makes it seem as though we ought to stop at the end of chapter 5 and just consider its implications on its own. But we can clearly see that Paul is continuing his argument in chapter 6. And when we read it this way, it becomes clear that Paul's using a rhetorical strategy where he's bouncing back and forth between addressing a party with little to no social influence and then addressing those who would have been culturally considered those people superiors. So Paul addresses wives and then their husbands. He addresses children and then their fathers. And then he addresses slaves and then their masters. And this observation, it leads us straight into the historical background because there is a social hierarchy being implied here that Paul is speaking directly into. First century Roman society, it was patriarchal. The father, in other words, held the authority, or as Paul puts it, they were the head in their household. One PBS article said it like this. Defined by the men in their lives, women in ancient Rome were valued mainly as wives and mothers. Although some were allowed more freedom than others, there was always a limit, even for the daughter of an emperor. Not much information exists about Roman women in the first century because women were not allowed to be active in politics, so nobody wrote about them. And neither were they taught how to write, so they couldn't tell their own stories. So women in first century Rome had essentially no political influence. And since Rome staked its identity on political life, they were considered to be of very little social value. The same was true for children and for slaves at the time. When we recognize this, we'll notice a pattern in Paul's letters of specifically addressing these three marginalized populations. This is intentional and vital for correctly interpreting Paul's thought in these sections. But along with the socio-historical context, there is one historical event recorded in the Bible that is also really valuable to include. That historical event is recorded in Acts 19, and it tells us a story about a wild riot that took place in Ephesus, where this church is located. Paul was preaching the gospel in the city, and hundreds of people were turning from sorcerous practices to faith in Jesus. As a result, the craftsmen of Ephesus, who were specializing in crafting household and temple idols, they were losing a ton of business. One of these businessmen, he rallied the other tradesmen up and stirred them to make a public statement that Jesus is no match for their god, Artemis. After stirring up a crowd, the whole town was spun into an uproar with an hours-long chanting session to exalt Artemis and hopefully drown out the gospel of Jesus. 
This story, it's an important piece of background because it shows that there is some imminent hostility towards Christians in Ephesus. They were seen as a group that was directly opposed to the chief god of their city and also economy ruiners. In first century Rome, any group with those two labels on their heads would have been considered a band of treasonous rebels. So that will be a really important piece of historical context to understanding the atmosphere that Paul is writing into when he writes this letter to the Ephesian church. And it underpins the way that he speaks to them and the directions that he's giving for public church assembly in practice. Finally, there's one piece of biblical context that's really plainly stated in Paul's letter to the Galatians that's, again, vital for our understanding. As Paul says it in chapter 3, he sees everyone who believes in Jesus as someone whose old identity, the one that society gives them, that identity is gone. And their new identity is a son of God because they are baptized into and now clothed with Christ. Paul has this idea that in the church, there is no social hierarchy because we all share Christ's identity. With this statement, he is making a direct attempt at shattering the social structure that the early church lives in. But in this section, Paul is speaking practically to the Ephesians because he recognizes that in the hostile context we've already seen in Ephesus, there would be some very unwise ways for the church to publicly practice or outwardly wield that oneness. So undermining their social hierarchy in a way that could bring swift and dangerous repercussions to the church. The Ephesian church has already been given this distinction of treasonous rebels, so now they could be in danger of bringing even greater violent reactions upon themselves if they were to publicly defy the social order as well. So what should the church do? Paul is giving some guidance in this section, which we will now see has a clear structure that should also be noted. Verse 21 stands apart as a sort of transition and thesis for the whole following section, which is this. Submit to one another in the fear of Christ. So what, what does that mean exactly? Well, Paul is going to spell it out practically. Verses 22 through 33 address the Ephesian wives and husbands, with the first three verses directly addressing the wives and the following nine verses directly addressing the husbands. So notice that he starts by addressing the wives, who in that cultural context would have had no political influence, remember? But he only spends a small time aimed towards them. He simply just asks them to submit to their husbands. But the bulk of this first section is actually addressing how men ought to use their inherent cultural power in their relationship with their wives. They should give up their privileged status in love for their wives, like Christ does for the church. 
Paul continues his argument again into chapter 6, where verses 1 through 4 address children and their parents. Verse 1 asks the children again to just submit or obey their parents, and then he gives a little incentive that any child is going to cling to in verse 2 and 3. Verse 4 then addresses fathers and again directs their attitudes toward their children, moving them away from wielding their household power authoritatively in the home and directing them instead to the fear of the Lord. Finally, Paul uses that same logic to address slaves and masters. 6, 5 through 8 asks slaves to submit or be obedient to their masters sincerely because they ultimately serve God. And then he turns again to addressing masters with that exact same theology, saying, don't wield your authority over them as if you don't both ultimately serve the same God. He's leveling the playing field by addressing them with the same theological directives. He's functionally tearing down the slave to master power disparity. So with this structure laid out and with the context work that we've done before, it becomes much clearer what Paul is doing here. Paul is actually helping the church navigate a dual reality that they're living in. On the one hand, they do live in a social context where there is a hierarchy of power and headship that needs to be carefully navigated given the hostility that's already aimed at the Ephesian church. But on the other hand, all believers are one in Christ. So within the church, there is no power to wield for they all place their identities in him. So how should they all act? Well, those without socio-political power shouldn't be social anarchists. They should publicly live peaceably and not attempt to undermine their Roman context, which would bring further hostility upon the church. And then on the other hand, those with socio-political power and cultural roles of headship ought to live prophetically in their society in such a way that they publicly treat their political quote-unquote subjects as equals. Why? because they are equal in the Lord, and that is how Jesus loves the church. So the socially privileged in the church should serve the others in love at the expense of their status. So what's the theology, what's the gospel that Paul is believing that drives him to write this section? Well, ultimately, Paul believes that all authority has been given to Jesus and all power has been given to him in heaven and on earth. But with that, Paul sees something incredibly formative. It's what Jesus does with his power and status as God. He lays it down to save the weak. We are all actually powerless until Jesus saves us. But Jesus also gives us the adoption as sons by which we all cry, Abba, Father. Meaning, when we're adopted into his family, we all put on the identity of Christ. So in the church, there should be no political hierarchy. 
Once again, when we have this exegesis correct, the section transforms before our eyes from something that can sound marginalizing or at best just simply instructive to a section that's filled with practical theology that finds its yes in the good news about Jesus. Preaching the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus becomes so accessible now. God is so loving that he gave up his royal throne on high to not only dwell among us, but to serve and to ultimately give up his life entirely that we might be with him in a loving and intimate relationship. And through his resurrection, he has raised us to a new life in him, one that calls God Father and one that calls those in the church brother regardless of where they stand culturally. So, for the homiletics, the application section of a sermon, I would begin off of the back of that context and then the theology and gospel and address those same two kinds of parties that Paul is, but doing it in more of like umbrella categories. Those with socio-political power and influence in our context, and then those without it. I would begin, like Paul, addressing those without socioeconomic political power in my context and let them know that their marginalized social identities are not what defines them in the eyes of God. Jesus came to save them and to give them a new identity as a child of God. But be careful, though, that you don't get puffed up with pride because of that. Lashing out at your culture because of your marginalization, it's a good way to get shut down. Instead, diligently love those around you, even when they do wield their authority over you. Remember, ultimately they have to answer to God who gave up all of his power and still reigns victorious over the authorities of darkness. So put your hope in him. And remember, you're not doing this alone you have the church family to walk with you. As for those who do have privilege and status in our context, live like Jesus. Your identity is found in him as well, not in your privilege. So live prophetically in the world and go out of your way to serve those who are marginalized, even at the expense of your own comfort and status. And remember, you will account to the Lord for what you do with the social status you have. So be humble and know that when you do love those around you in the love of Christ, it is to his glory. All right, well, once again, I just want to say thanks so much for walking through this section and being diligent to do the work that it takes to properly interpret this passage. Doesn't it just speak really practically to our current culture, we still are navigating this exact kind of situation. So I hope that you continue to, as you go from this, think it over, allow the gospel of the truth of Jesus who gave up all authority and power to serve and to love us, to affect your heart, and then allow his identity that he's given to you, allow that to become your identity 
in your heart that you can trust him with who you are rather than what society says you are and in the places that you do have socio or political power that you would be moved to love people with that and give it up in service like jesus does for us it's so prophetic and so needed in our day so thanks for taking the time to listen i hope that it's been a blessing for you